This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Shane Claiborne. He is a founding member of The Simple Way, an intentional community in North Philadelphia. I spoke with him on April 24, 2007, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of WHYY in Philadelphia. This interview is included in our program, A Monastic Revolution, Meeting Shane Claiborne. Download the MP3 of the produced show at speakingoffaith.org. Um, and I think Tony Campolo had started that program. It was oh, okay. in a it was a summer program for kids in a church in South Philadelphia. It's quite an experience. But mm. uh, I, I feel like I have connections to that world you you live in, although I haven't met many of those people. Um, Mitch, so I'm hearing an echo. Do you think that's headphone? Could could you turn your headphones down a little bit? Maybe. Uh, let me just. Yeah, I think. Uh, you have a vague echo. How's that? Is I that... think that's good. You've probably done a lot of this, haven't you? I've done a little bit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so if you know about the program, I would say that um, you know what I what I do is draw out deeply religious people to speak about. Uh, to, to hear what they have to say and uh, what they have to say distinctively to the world we live in. And we talk about many different subjects. I, I think it's an exercise in narrative theology. Um, mm. And so what I really want to do is talk through, you know, your theology narratively, just talk about the life you've led and what you know through that life. Uh, Great. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And most okay. of your listeners are from all different faiths and They're, no faith and yeah. everything. <laughs> we have a, we have about half a million <clears throat> listeners across the country, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand podcasters and growing. And they are a real range um, of age. I mean, I, I I think we have listeners eighteen to eighty, men and women, um, hmm. many traditions, and we get a lot of uh, emails from people who say they're agnostic and atheist, and they never thought they'd listen to a program called Speaking of Faith. <laughs> so oh, I, I, I think it's well, a cross-section of America, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, Mitch, what do you think? Oh, tell me. I need to, He needs to hear you. Let's talk about something mundane. Tell me what you had for lunch. I hope you had well, lunch. Well, I've actually still got it here. I got a little uh, veggie sandwich, mm-hmm. and... and uh, I had a big breakfast though, so we we had a big group come down from New York. We're busting our gardens open in the neighborhood, so hopefully yeah. we'll be growing all kinds of veggies this spring oh, here. Great. <laughs> okay, well let's start. Maybe we'll get back to your garden. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Tell me, tell me as we start, and as I say, you know, that I I start in this place with almost anybody I'm speaking to, even if we're going to talk about physics. Um, tell me about the religion of your childhood. Well, I was raised in the Bible Belt down in East Tennessee, sort of suffocated with Christianity. Right. <laughs> you know, and and uh, I went to youth group and was, you know, we played a lot of games and did a lot. There's not a whole lot to do in East Tennessee, so <laughs> you, you pretty much have to go to youth group. And <laughs> so that's what I did. Uh, and I had a sincere conversion experience where... I, I felt like I, I heard someone tell me how Jesus loved me, and that that made a lot of sense to me. And I got born again, I guess you would say. And mm-hmm. then, because there's not a lot to do in East Tennessee, we did that every year. You know, I would go and get born again, again. <laughs> and and, yeah. and uh, I, I feel like the the Christianity I grew up with 
really sort of looked at the world and said, yeah, it's falling apart, but there's life after death, while a lot of us were really asking, is there life before death, you know, and doesn't our <laughs> faith have just anything to speak into the world that mm-hmm. we're living in? Uh, so that's, I, ca- I became pretty disenchanted with a lot of the uh, church culture that I grew up with and, and just felt like I was asking bigger questions than they were willing to trust me with. Right. And then you did for a while become what you call the Jesus freak. Um, you became also quite involved in uh, politics. In, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in, I in Christian politics, in the kind of conservative Christian politics as uh, that evolved in the last 10, 15 years. Surely, and it was all sort of formed by that culture that I grew up in. So we were, you know, organizing the See You at the Pole campaign to try to put prayer back in schools, you know, and things like that. And and I organized the Bush Quail campaign in 1992 mm-hmm. and met Dan Quail. And you know, right. I was always passionate, no matter what I what I felt about different issues. I, I loved, uh, you know, debate. And so I had strong views about abortion and homosexuality. Uh, but I didn't know any gay folks, and I didn't know anyone that you know had had an abortion, or many you know folks right. that were, were struggling. Yeah, right. yeah. So it, it was it was a very narrow world for me, um, and I'm I, I guess it's what gives me a little bit of grace with other people as I see how much people have had uh, a lot of grace and patience with me in, in my continual evolution of thought and faith, and mm. and uh, that gives me a lot of grace with others. Mm. Um, I'll just tell you, just so you know, that I grew up Southern Baptist in Oklahoma, so I, I grew up in the same oh, right. kind of world where church was the center of the universe, and and you went to camp and got born again every summer. I mean, I know that 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 uh, culture. Mm. You wrote in your book, you wrote, I was driven mostly by theology and of this period in your life. You wrote, I was driven mostly by theo- theology and ideology, which isn't very sustainable, even if they're true. I wondered if Jesus had anything to say about this world. And I began to question how much he cared whether I listened to Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And th- then you went, you went to a Christian college. And, uh, you know, what's intriguing in your story is, is you, you were um, very interested in these spiritual questions. You, you wanted to know more about Christianity and apply your mind to it. And it seems to me that that, that really began to happen um, in North Philadelphia for you, not so much in the classroom or in church, right. but among mm-hmm. homeless people. Yeah, for sure. I, I was gifted to have some friends with me in college that just totally bust the bubble of the suburban college life. And, and they brought me into the city and introduced me to folks that were homeless and happened to be their friends. And I was just amazed by the the stories and the lives that I was interacting with. And they were really bringing the scripture to life for me because then mm. I felt like I was walking uh, much of the, the, the story that Jesus lived and the people who he spent his life with, I was encountering them. And, and to this day, I've learned more through the tears of homeless women than, you know, I've learned more from the tears of homeless women than any systematic theology book has taught me about Jesus. Be, hmm. Because it's those families that open my eyes up to the world and to, to the scripture. And, I mean, North Philadelphia, just to set the scene, is, is, a, is a ravaged neighborhood, right? I mean, it's in a great mm. American city where you still live, but it's... Uh, you know, I remember the first time I drove through North Philadelphia. It, it looks like a war might have happened there. Um, mm. it, parts of it, um, 
I mean, was that, I don't know, can you recall for me when you first went there and... and uh... Yeah. Yeah, well, my first encounter with, with Kensington and North Philly was when there was a group of poor and homeless families with the Kensington Welfare Rights Union, which was just a group of, of mostly homeless women mm-hmm. and children that had gotten together. And they did something really courageous. In, in the midst of the, the the ruins of North Philadelphia, where there's you know over 20,000 abandoned houses and 700 abandoned factories, they found an abandoned Catholic church building and they moved into it. And, and it was sort of a squatter takeover, you know, that they, right. they moved in and resurrected this space. And we read about that in college, and the newspaper article that uh, we we read said that these families had resurrected the church, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that they had also ironically been given a, a an ultimatum a, eviction notice that within forty eight hours, if they weren't out, they could face arrest for trespassing on church property. So that really stirred all kinds of deep questions in us, and and a group of us from the college got involved and basically put our lives alongside theirs and said uh, to the city, if you come to evict them, then you you got to take. Us too. Did you kind of move in with them into the yeah, church? Yeah, we sure did. It was mm-hmm. it was a wild commute. You know, I was going back and forth to classes. Now, and you were luckily, at Eastern College, right? Yes. And uh-huh. where, where is that? Is that um, in Philadelphia proper? Or? It's about a half hour outside okay. of the downtown area, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I, I, I was lucky that I studied sociology. So my, my teacher, Tony Campolo, he was just like, well, just write papers about it, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. if I'd studied biology or something, I would have had a little trouble. But I was able to integrate everything that I was learning in the city into, you know, my, my academic life. And, and so I'm writing papers about housing and, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the crisis of, of housing in Philly. And I'm, I'm seeing that every day, you know. Okay, so you you moved in basically into the church. You and and some friends from college. How many of how many right. students were involved? Well, it's funny because it started out as a small group of us that we we thought, you know, let's just see who shows up. And and over a hundred students wow. eventually got involved in this. And even the president of the college uh, voiced her support and gave the extra beds in her home away to the families. And, and so it started a really uh, vibrant movement of students, and that that made a big difference because the the uh, media became very involved, right. and now you know we were all facing arrest as well. And it, they made it look like the church was kicking homeless people out. And that's because the church was kicking homeless people out, you know. <laughs> and uh, so it, it just lasted not for forty-eight hours, but for for weeks and weeks and weeks that we were there. And I mean, it had a happy ending, didn't it? Um, they they didn't get evicted, and w- is it right that that um, everyone that those homeless families had, for the most part, found a place to live by the time you all left? It, it was incredible what happened. Folks saw it on the news, and they, they bought houses or donated houses. Mm. Uh, some Section 8 uh, low-income housing vouchers were released. And the way that the story ended was the families marched to the mayor's office, and they said, you have no idea what it's like to live in our shoes as, as homeless women, you know, in, in North Philly, but we, we invite you to come and try to see life through our eyes and walk in our shoes. And then they took off all their shoes. Uh, and left them in a big pile outside the mayor's office with that invitation. So mm. it was incredible. There were hard stories, but there were also beautiful stories. And those families have been our theologians. You know, they've been our teachers yeah. and, and uh, sociologists and the folks that have, have really opened our eyes up to the world. You know, you also, you talk a lot, you write a lot about miracles. Um, and y- you tell a story, um, one chapter of that, about some you know that one of the tactics the city used was to say that the fire marshal would have to close the place down 
Um, would you tell that story about the middle of the night, the knock on the door? Surely. <laughs> it really was one of those things. That as you read it, it's, it's almost as, uh, it, it was as wild as it sounds. And we, we knew that one of the tactics the city had used was they said, we're going to bring in the fire marshal and um, say that they don't meet fire standards. It's in the interest of the family's safety that they're being evicted. And it sort of got the church off the hook a little bit. You know? Right, so right. Then um, we, we had had a sense that uh, of when the fire marshal was coming and uh, 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 but the night before, uh, there was a knock at the door, and it was almost midnight, and we opened the door uh, to find that there were firefighters outside, and we were sort of taken aback. You know, we start talking a mile a minute. We're like, can you please come back tomorrow? You uh-huh. know, the kids are already asleep and everything. And they said, no, 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 just listen. Um we're not here to evict you. In fact, it's just the opposite. We know what's happening, and we know that it's not right. And so we're here against orders. In fact, we could get in really big trouble for being here. So we, we want to walk you through here and help you get ready for tomorrow because they, they are going to Bring it up to come. code. Yeah, and so they took us to the fire department. They helped us get boxes of, of uh, uh, fire extinguishers and exit signs and, and the smoke detectors that we put up all over the building. And then the next day, the, the fire marshal did come with the archdiocese and city officials, and the press was there. And uh, the fire marshal walks through the building and then sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, well, I'm not kicking them out. They, they're close enough to meeting fire standards. You know? <laughs> and it was this sense that, that God was just with these families, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and would do whatever was necessary to protect them. So, you know, so I think the hard question a cynic would ask is, you know, why didn't why didn't God work the miracle beforehand of giving them jobs and enough money and to have safe places to live rather than have to go through that ordeal? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think it's one that we've been asking for for years and years. And and I can remember a comic in Philadelphia that was in the in the paper, and it was these two guys that were asking that very question. It was that one guy said, you know, I wonder why God allows all of this poverty and pain and hurting in the world. And his friend says, well, why don't you ask God that? And the guy says, well, I guess I'm scared. He says, what are you scared of? He says, I guess I'm scared that God will ask me the same question. <laughs> and I think that in some ways, hmm. w- when we've put all of this on God, <laughs> it's, it's as if right. God has been throwing it back and going, hey, you're you're my body. You are my hands and my feet. Uh, and, you, you you know, that, that this is something that we are entrusted with. And I, I think probably one of the most difficult things that that Jesus ever did was sort of leave this idea of, of transforming the world or the kingdom of God coming in the hands of such a ragtag bunch of people that goof it up over and over, you know. But <laughs> I, I do believe that that's, right. that is the hope, is that we can be a part of joining uh, God's dream for the world, which is that people would not be homeless or would not kill each other and, and those sorts of things. Hmm. You wrote, um, I think you were quoting St. Francis of Assisi, um, there is something mystical about finding God in the ruins of the church. Is that mm. is that St. Francis? Is that from St. Francis? Yeah, well, you know, St. Francis was a part of this powerful movement right. where they literally began to rebuild, you know, the, the old ruins of the cathedral San Damiano in Assisi. Mm-hmm. And we, we started hearing about that, and it was almost like God has this this special place for uh, busting into the ruins and brokenness of society, which is exactly, you know, why, what happened with, with Jesus showing up where they said, you know, nothing good could come out of Nazareth. Right. You know? And right. so when people say that, that uh, nothing good comes out of Kensington, you know, around Philly, <laughs> Kensington's called the Badlands. And I'm mm-hmm. always like, you've got to be real careful about that because God's got a special place for the Badlands like Kensington or Nazareth. Hmm. Um, 
You know, there's a genre of of writing and thinking in our time. Uh, on the one hand, there are uh, I I don't know. I call them strident atheists, right? Um, voices mm. who say religion is so ruined. Uh, the church, the Christian church, and other religions are so ruined that the entire religious enterprise should be thrown out. Um, and then there's also somebody like Bishop Spong who um, who essentially says that that m- most of the tradition of Christianity uh, is questionable, so it doesn't work for people today. What's interesting to me about your theology and the life you're living is that you are not just seeking to mm, address the world as we as it comes to us in the 21st century but you're also really going back and and looking at as you say ancient dreams and um and finding in figures like saint francis of assisi uh, and others um real sustenance uh, it's kind of mm-hmm. embedded in this at the center of of christian tradition yeah, I, I think one of the things that that Christianity does at its best it, it, throughout history is sort of call into question everything that is relevant. You know, so I'm I'm very uh-huh. skeptical of this idea that we've got to tackle every big triumphal question that that uh, that's being asked and and, and to make our, uh, our our faith completely relevant to the culture and and. Uh, for me, part of what the the peculiarness of our faith has been is these groups of people that um, move into the abandoned places of empire and, and on the margins of society and go to the desert and they call into question everything that is a part of this uh, dream that they've been handed by Rome or America and they, they end up reclaiming dignity. And in the very line that they can say, our hope doesn't lie in, in, in Rome's gospel or Rome's empire. They, they say, we've got another little kingdom that's forming all over the place, and it bubbles up in the places you might least expect it. And here, you know, everything's backwards. You know, the last or first, the first or last. Huh. And, and Jesus says to the religious people, it's very interesting, he says th- that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God of he- ahead of you. Right. <laughs> and I love that because that's that's really what I've seen and what I've experienced is that um, as Mother Teresa says, in the poor we see Jesus in his most distressing disguises. And, and it's in those places that I've, I've encountered God in, in really beautiful ways. And that forms my faith. You know, I think that in, especially in the time that we're living in, there are gospels that are out there that have uh, like the prosperity gospel or the, the mm-hmm. national, you know, nationalism gospel that are out there that have distorted the best that our faith has to offer. And they're, they're people of all traditions, you know, Jewish, Muslims, Christian, that, that I think have, have, have distorted the best that our faith has to offer. And yet there are groups of us that are saying we refuse to allow that to be the only visibility of our faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we want to show a, a Christianity that's healthier than what many people have seen. You actually, in your search for real Christians, <laughs> as you write about it, you, you went to live and work with Mother Teresa for a while when she was still alive. That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and tell me about that. Well, I, you know, I start reading this stuff that Jesus said, and I'm just like, man, does anyone really believe this anymore? <laughs> <You Right. know? laughs> like, because I, I saw Christians that 
um, they they believe something differently, but their life, our, our life, just sort of looked like everybody else's, you know. Uh, and uh, the the evangelical church in particular is so obsessed with making believers uh, that I, I don't think we had any idea how to make disciples or followers or people that really did the things that Jesus says that we're to do. Hmm. And then we end up with a faith that, as Chesterton says, the 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 greatest hindrance to to people understanding Jesus is the Christians, you know, <laughs> who proclaim him with our mouth but deny him with our life. Mm. And Mother Teresa was one of those people that I felt just lived so magnetically and and authentically the the simple words and teaching of Jesus. So we wrote her a letter, you know, and we yeah. said, hey, we don't know if you give internships out there in Calcutta, but we would love <laughs> to come work. And uh, we didn't hear back. And I guess she got a lot of mail. But uh, yeah. <laughs> we ended up just calling uh, some of her sisters on the phone, and they gave us a phone number. So we called Calcutta. And uh, I'm expecting a polite missionaries of charity. How can we help you or something? <laughs> you know. And, and I just hear this raspy old voice go, Hello. You know, and uh, I'm I'm thinking I've got the wrong number and it's four dollars a minute. You know, so I start talking really fast and I'm like, well, we're trying to get hold of the missionaries of charity or, or Mother Teresa's order out there, or the sisters. And she said, well, this is the missionaries of charity. This is Mother Teresa. <laughs> And, yeah, and I'm like, and I'm the Pope, you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, so finally, I, I, I start asking her, you know, well, can we come out and work? And she says, yeah, come on out. And uh, then I ask her what I think are logical follow up questions, you know, well, where are we going to sleep? What are mm-hmm. we going to eat? Mm-hmm. And she didn't worry a whole lot about those things. She <laughs> just said to us, well, God takes care of the lilies and the sparrows and God will take care of you. Hmm. So yeah, I don't know how you argue with that one. So we we just we went over there, and I, I worked there uh, with uh, other close friends of mine, and, and and several of us have been over uh, other times in the past ten years. But it's she she was just a beautiful uh, life, I think, well lived. And you worked in a leper colony there, and you know that has such biblical uh, echoes, um, mm. right? And also, yeah, yeah. and also, mm, I think it seems. To not only to to belong to Bible stories if, for people in this culture, but to a world that surely doesn't exist anymore, right? Lepers surely right, don't exist yeah. anymore. What did you learn there in that work um, about the Bible, um, about mm. this faith that you that you that you couldn't have learned anywhere else? Boy, yeah, I learned so much. I, I think part of what I I learned was. Uh, that it wasn't just enough to protest the things that were wrong in the world because I think we had been sucked up into this real movement of social justice and going out and getting arrested and protesting everything that was wrong. So we knew what we were against. We just didn't know what we were for, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And, uh, and and in that leper colony, I learned uh, from a group of people who had been basically forced by their society to create uh, a, a new society in the shell of the old one. And, and, and the way that it started was, you know, and I, I'd read in a scripture about lepers that, you know, ring bells and everybody gets out of the way and all those things, mm. but I didn't even know that we still had it until I got over there. And I heard the story of how uh, in their society, this group of people were completely outcast. You know, they couldn't go in stores or restaurants. And so they... they um, were totally marginalized, and the one of the areas where they were was along the train tracks because that land was basically worthless and mm-hmm. and Mother Teresa had started taking care of them there 
and then they started taking care of each other. And uh, it, by, by the time I got there, there were over a hundred families that were living on this land together, and they had created this this beautiful culture together in, in this village, basically, where they had, uh, they raised their own food, they raised their own uh, vegetables and animals and had a fish hatchery, and then they had their own businesses where they made their own uh, blankets and all the saris, the blue and white saris that the sisters wear were made there. Hmm. Uh, they <laughs> made their own bandages for the clinic, and they had a clinic that was run by folks who all had leprosy, and they had been treated, so now they were treating each other. And they, they, when someone had an arm or a leg amputated, they had a, a little wood shop where they would custom make an arm or leg for that person. Hmm. And it, they just thought of everything. And, and, and the name of the colony, interestingly, was Gandhiji Primnivas, which means Gandhi's new life. Hmm. And Gandhi would have just been so proud, you know, uh, <laughs> by, by this group of people who had refused to just settle for the, what the world had handed them. And, you know, his idea, let's march the sea and get our own salt. Let's weave our own clothes. And, and that's exactly what they were doing. Hmm. So it was really there that I, I kind of caught that vision of let's build something new together. You know, as one of my <laughs> heroes, Dorothy Day, said, let's build a society where it's easy for people to be good to each other. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, what were you doing there then? What, what was your work? I, I you basically, I, I, first of all, I just went there to, to get to know people and to serve in any way that I could. So one of the pa- places that they put me was in the clinic, uh, but I was just sitting there rowing cotton balls. That was my job. <laughs> and they, would, they would go and pick cotton and they would put it in a pile beside me and I would roll cotton balls that they then used as they treated each other. And that, that that's what I did day after day. And I got to know several people there really well. Uh, there was a, a young guy, 18 years old, that worked with uh, this older man. And they, they would uh, thread all of the needles for the looms. And so I sat down with them, and we would talk and laugh. And the older guy had really bad gas. And so when <laughs> he would, you know, we're in this tight little room, and we would just crack up, you know, as every time he, <laughs> he would let loose, you know. And it was so <laughs> it was so wild because, uh, I mean, these weren't things that I imagined you would do with lepers in Calcutta, you know. Right. And yet they were such real people. And, uh, and it was, again, there, too, that I feel like the, the, the gospel really came to life for me because I saw these things that Jesus said where he says, uh, you will do the same things that I have been doing and even greater things than these because I'm going to, to the Father and I'm leaving you the Spirit. And I saw that and I'm like, yeah, but what, what does that mean? You know, who's, who actually, where, where are the Christians that actually raise people from the dead? You know, what the mm-hmm. heck does that mean? Uh, but it was there that I didn't feel like I healed any lepers. But I touch lepers, and I think what's just as miraculous as the fact that Jesus healed lepers was that he touched them. Hmm. And maybe if we had more Christians that were doing those same things that Jesus did, the world would start to look a lot differently. You know, we may not walk on water, but if we can um, walk the earth for peace, you know, that's a miracle. If we, we may not turn water into wine, though, you know, some people may try. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if we can actually help the 1.2 billion people that need water get it, then that's a miracle, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I had new eyes to see that. Hmm. And was it from there that you went back to Philadelphia and founded um, the community you now live in the simple way? Yeah, it was. There was a group of us out of that student movement that ended up going, let's try to to do church like, like the old days. You know, we would read in the book of Acts. The, the old Bible days meaning a couple <laughs> thousand years ago, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the old, old days, <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but, but Not the 1950s, of, no. 
<laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, so when it says that all the believers were together and shared everything in common, no one claimed any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything, and there were no needy persons among them. Right. That's exactly what it says in the book of Acts. And, and we said, we want to try to live like that. And, and there was surely a moment where we had all kinds of baggage from the church, you know, recovering evangelicals and disenchanted Catholics. <laughs> you know, right. And we just said, we're going to stop complaining about the church that we've experienced and try to become the church that we dream of. Hmm. Tell me how it works, this the simple way. I mean, how many people are there in the community? And what is your... You, you are called new monastics. I mean, do you, do you have a rule of life the way um, old monastics do, the ancient monastic orders? Well, first of all, I, uh, it's, I guess it's important to know, too, that we've been doing it for 10 years, you yeah. know, and so <laughs> we sort of stumbled into everything. We had no idea what we were doing. We were pretty pretentious when we started, and we're like, we're doing church for the first time in hundreds of years, you know, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and then we looked around and saw beautiful expressions of, of it uh, all around us. But we, when we started, there were six of us, and we just put our money together, and we, we uh, got a house in North Philadelphia, and then we had no huge visions for transforming our neighborhood or something. We were coming very much as learners, and we opened our door up to people. Our our mission was just to love God, love people, and follow Jesus. And we said, if we can figure that out, then we'll be doing well, you know. And, and were and, you uh, all kind of just out of college, 22, 23? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so we had a lot of homeless folks that came by the house. We had a lot of kids that needed help with homework. And everything that we do just sort of bubbled up out of that, you hmm. know. And in North Philly, we've there's a lot of struggles, uh, but there's also a lot of hope. And, and so we try to, uh, to, to feed each other hope and to, to, to reclaim abandoned spaces. So uh, you know, you're important, Chris, because I came down here uh, after I'm missing out on all the gardening today. We're reclaiming two lots on our block right. where they're formerly just filled with trash and needles. And we're, we're, we're reclaiming that space and doing gardens with our neighborhood. So all those things just sort of uh, have, have bubbled up out of living there. And all the programs that we do sort of evolve based on ideas of neighbors and things. So we have mm-hmm. a little thrift store. We, uh, in a, in, as soon as I leave here, we'll be giving out about 50 bags of food to folks that uh, need food and um, uh, th- those sorts of things. But I think it's also that we initially, when we started the community, we were just responding to crises, you know, and needs and everything. Mm-hmm. And then there comes a point where Dr. Martin Luther King said so well, he said, we're called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe the whole road to Jericho needs to be transformed. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. So we start to look at an economy, which in our neighborhood has left, you know, about 200,000 people without jobs and abandoned housing everywhere. And we see one in every three African-American men going to prison and, mm-hmm. and just, just horrific things that are clearly not in line with with God's dream for the world, you know, right. so we, we start to, to reimagine that. And, and, uh, and, and definitely for us, that, that idea of redemptive violence and, and, and the, these ideas that, that violence can bring change or, or, or peace or whatever are things that haunt our neighborhood and our world. So those have caused us to ask questions about it, what it means to be global peacemakers and, and all that. Right. I want to I ask you about redemptive violence in your time in Iraq. I want to hear a little bit more, though, about the, just how, how your community works um, before, yeah. we, before we do that. Cause like, so here's the question American has to ask. How is it funded? <laughs> I mean, yeah. what's the financial setup? How do you how do you afford to give away fifty bags of groceries? 
Well, it's it's really fun because I think what we've learned is by living in community, just like you hear the saying, many hands make for light work, you know, is when we share stuff, we have an abundance of resources that we began to see. Mm-hmm. And uh, so as we moved in together and started sharing finances and sharing things together, we, we create a very sustainable way of life. So we have one car that we all share together. We have we share washer and dryer and, you know, houses and everything. Uh, and the the way that it works financially for us is that we all work part-time jobs and, okay. and doing things that we love, you know. So we have a massage therapist and a carpenter and a bike messenger. And, right. yeah, and you, you know, write uh, books. ESLT. Yeah, and I write books and speak. That's a crazy yeah. job. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, But we do things that we love, and then we pull our money together in order to meet our own needs. And then we get tons of donations from all over the country that help us give school supplies to 500 kids, you know, and do the community gardens and all those things. Uh and we also try to restore a lot of stuff that's getting thrown out by sort of a disposable society. You know, we're, we're, um, we have uh, a, a, a lot of our food we get that's being thrown away. You know, so if you come to a potluck at our house, it says vegetarian, vegan, and rescued. You know, <laughs> and rescued means right out of the trash. Okay. Uh, but, but it's like we try to, to uh, use things that are getting thrown out. And one of the exciting things that we have going on now is trying to start up some incubator businesses that create some jobs in our neighborhoods and communities. So one of those it's that, that's pretty neat is uh, we have a, a veggie co-op where we we have vegetable oil that we gather from around the city and are converting it to biodiesel or running cars off of it so several of our communities have converted their cars to where they run off of used vegetable oil can people do that to uh, their own car to a regular yeah yeah it's great there's a there's a good book called from the deep fryer to the fuel tank and it tells a lot about (laughs) it and uh we've got some resources on our website too but but the way that we're doing that too is out of a one of our sister communities called new jerusalem and everyone there is in recovery Hmm. from drug and alcohol addiction and they are providing jobs for themselves through that uh, business. Are and they the business also in is Philadelphia? Also, yeah, it's mm-hmm. right right here in North Philly. Mm-hmm. And, and they are people who need jobs, and they also have this beautiful vision for the world uh, that they, on, on the wall at New Jerusalem, it says, we cannot fully recover until we help the society that made us sick recover. Mm-hmm. So there's this real deep sense of, of that we, we have to get at the root of what's causing so much addiction and and. Uh, and, and seeing drugs as a replacement industry in our neighborhoods as well. So we, huh. we are actively, you know, kind of resisting that. Hmm. Yeah, and, so, you know, on. I would also say that, that uh, a part of what our communities are identified, uh, a lot of folks identify our communities as a new monasticism. And it's interesting because that's not language that we originally used okay. or, or even that I use all the time because it doesn't mean something to all of my neighbors. You know, if I'm like, we're new monastics, they're like, well, you're, I know you're kind of nasty, but what, you know, and so it's <laughs> right. like, what does it mean? But it is a very helpful lens for a lot of people that know church history uh, to see what we're doing, not as something super Christian or extraordinary, but something that the Spirit does over and over throughout history is at moments where the culture has really infected Christianity and you have all, all the, the Christian identity sort of gets lost. There are these groups of people that go to the margins and rethink what it means to be Christian. 
And in a lot of ways, the only reason that what we're doing looks radical is an indictment on the sort of Christianity that we've become accustomed to, because hmm. this is really what uh, people have, have, have been doing with their Christian faith uh, throughout history. Right. Uh, and, and monastics put together orthodoxy, like right belief with orthopraxis, you know, right practices. And so we've tried to do that. And we have statements both of what we believe, but also how we live and mm-hmm. the way that our beliefs work themselves out in practice. Uh, and it's great because a lot of Catholics get what we're doing. They're like, yeah, you're, you're doing exactly what you're folks ortho- have done you're you know, over ex- and over. So. ultra-Orthodox. Yeah, and, I mean, it's true that monastic movements have tended to be kind of renewal movements that collect at the, at the edges of tradition or outside traditions. Yeah, and right. the, but um, I think also in a modern year, monasticism uh, connotes, especially for people who may not have been very close to real monastic communities, it connotes kind of self-denial and uh, celibacy and um, mm. it is countercultural in that sense. Uh, how does that work in your, do you take vows? I mean, many monastics take vows of poverty, chastity, celibacy. Do you have anything like that? We've, we we do have commitments that we make together, and, and people are at all different layers. Just like within a monastic community, you have novices, you have folks that have taken full vows, that sort of thing. We have people that are journeying into that. So mm-hmm. that that's what's so exciting, too. So you really I think, are kind of developing a... Mm, a way of life, a system, in a way. You probably don't right. like that and word that's system, exactly, do you? Or do you mind the word no, system? No, I love the I love the idea of a way of life because okay. that's what the early church was called. You know, yes. was the way because they were providing a way that people could live uh, differently. And mm-hmm. the monastics often describe their communities as schools for conversion. Mm-hmm. That they were learning the process of conversion, and it's not something that happens all of a sudden. No, and there's, there's structure so much to it, culturally. But, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so a lot of our community structures we describe a lot like the trellis of a garden. You know, if you don't have some structure, then your tomatoes rot on the ground, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But if you have too much, then it does the opposite of free life, and it, it sort of suffocates things. So we, we all kind of figure out that balance. Um, and for us, we, we don't necessarily take the traditional vows, like the, the vow of poverty. When we begin to talk about that with some of our neighbors— you know, in the Franciscan way of, we, you know, beloved poverty and the freedom of possessions. There's something beautiful in that, but there's also something that, that sort of reeks of privilege because right. we said we're taking a vow because of poverty. Because it's a choice. Like, Have you been poor? You know, <laughs> you don't right. want to take a vow of poverty. So we say to love our neighbor as ourself demands simplicity. So we, 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 we had this idea that, that if we really love uh, our neighbors across class and race and everything else that divides us, then, then redistribution is something that naturally happens out of that. Uh, mm. But uh, in the same with celibacy is we, we really honor both singles and married folks and, and, you know, families with children. And there's not like this uh, strict sense of you've got to you've got to do it this way. But we I've, I've always lived with married folks and, you know, and, and things like that. And I think it, what, what it frees us up to do is to allow ourselves to uh, seek who the Spirit is cultivating us to be. And, and, and uh, um, as my monk friend tells me, he says, well, you got to figure out what makes you shine brighter. Do you shine mm. brighter alone or with a partner? Mm. And, um, mm. and he also says that we can live without sex, but we can't live without love. Mm. And there are 
plenty of people that have a heck of a lot of sex, but they don't have love. You know, and there companionship. Are, are many, yeah. yeah. And, and many folks that don't, you know, have sex at all, but they experience a, a deep sense of love. And so yes. community frees us up to be uh, a people where we can give ourselves for others. And then I think uh, also, Krista, it kind of allows us to transcend a lot of the things that have divided the church over uh, issues of sexual minorities and po- folks attracted to the same gender is we, we create communities where we are very, you know, welcoming of people on on the journey of figuring out who they are. And if we can create a community where people are, are able to figure that out, then, then that's beautiful. And we don't all have to agree on this, you know, in the exact same way. And, right. and I think one of the best things that we can do is disagree well. And maybe <laughs> more than just having a community that agrees on every doctrinal issue, uh, a part of what we can really be a witness to is that we can disagree well, and that's just as beautiful. That you can disagree well and that you can be Christian together. I mean, is that, yeah. that you are all living out this this vocation together. And that we're working out it out in really relational ways. Like I, when I had I had so many views on homosexuality and I didn't know anyone that was gay. You know, right, <laughs> it's, right. so, it's so sick. And so, and then I met a guy at at college who was wrestling with his sexuality. Is he said I'm attracted to the same gender and I feel like God made a mistake when God made me, and He wanted to kill Himself over that. And I thought to myself, my God, if if this guy can't find a home in the church. Who have we become? You know, and what have we what have, what have we become? So, mm. I think we try to be people that magnetize folks that are figuring that out, and that are marked by our own humility and brokenness. Hmm. Yeah, you know, there's something um, in the way you not just the way you see your Christianity, but the way you look at the world that I think may be possible in your generation in the 21st century in a way. And maybe it wasn't before. Um, it's a very holistic vision. There's a self-awareness. Mm. There's kind of a global sensibility. So, for example, you you you've taken the old adage that if you give someone a fish, uh, they'll eat for a day. But if you teach them how to fish, they can eat for a lifetime, right? But you say mm-hmm. we also need to ask who owns the pond and who polluted it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean that that's new. I think, and 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 I'm not sure people human beings have previously been free, been, lived in a world where they could think that way or see all the connections. Have you, have you thought mm-hmm. about this, about your, well, your I, generation I, and your, this time? Everywhere I go, I am so encouraged by the, the questions that people are asking, especially even within the evangelical church that's been so square, so scared of a lot of those questions. Mm-hmm. And, and I think some of the the more damaging uh, views that we've had around uh, the, from the religious right and stuff of folks going, oh, you know, global warming is just something to take us off track from the important issues like homosexuality. You know, right, <laughs> this right. is like, what in the world? You know, like most people my age that I see, even within the evangelical church, like transcend those categories of left and right and, and really are, are wanting to know how to create a better world and know that the world that we've been handed is very fragile. And I love when when uh, when Jesus said uh, that if the if the Christians are silent, then the rocks will cry out. And I think now he would say maybe the rock stars will cry out. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of Christians though that are going. We don't just need um, you know these celebrities to work out uh, you know to change the world. We need to figure out how to live differently ourselves and how to 
um, live with some imagination and, and some creativity and give ourselves for something bi- bigger than, uh, than than just our own little uh, circle of friends. And, and so that, that to me, that's so encouraging. And I'm convinced that uh, if if the Christian church loses this generation, it will be not because we, we didn't entertain them, but because we didn't dare them, you know, with the truth of the world. And, and uh, not, it won't be because we did, made the gospel too hard but because we made it too easy and we just huh. played games with kids and and uh and and didn't actually challenge them to think about how they live. Right. I mean there is something about living in this time um, with media and the interconnected world that brings the hardness of life and politics and home, isn't there? I mean it's mm. it's present. It's in our living rooms. Yeah. And and I think the, the the hunger for community is there, and 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 that's why people are very attracted to our life, is because it, it right. in some ways it's a pretty extreme expression of it. You know, a ton of people packed in one house. You know, but yeah. but I I think that there are beautiful forms of co-housing and and of of community gardens and p- things that people are doing everywhere that bring them to life. And there are so many people that are questioning that pattern of consumption where we're we're using up so much of the world's resources with so little of the population and, and it's not even bringing us to life you know we're the right. richest and most miserable depressed country in the world you know <laughs> and one guy just told me the other day he's like yeah I'll, i ride my bike to work and then or no he said he said uh, this guy told me in the suburbs he said my way of life it's so weird i, I drive my suv to work and then i drive my suv to <laughs> a gym where i work out and i pay for a membership he's like why don't i just ride a bike more you know <laughs> and i think that's where a lot of people are at they just don't have permission to kind of think outside the box you know, you also made a really interesting observation. I think now you've been you've been saying some critical things about the religious right, but you're also you're quite critical of of liberals and progressives. I mean, you 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 want to get away from all the boxes. I think, and here's something you you've you've written about being disturbed by flags in churches and by the patriotism that gets mixed up in American Christianity, and certainly in a time of war, gets mixed up. And you wrote. Um, of this post-9-11 period, this burst of nationalism reveals the deep longing we all have for community, a natural thirst for intimacy that liberals and progressive Christians would have done much better to acknowledge. Say, say some more about that. Yeah, I, I think that a part of my own journey gives me uh, this this sense of... Um, uh, invitation for for people to ask those those questions in ways that we we I think when I was when I was because I floated in the side of conservatism and in the side of uh, progressive you know liberalism yeah. I've seen in both of those circles sort of a self-righteousness you know that marks itself by how pure it's become and and you know in East Tennessee that meant like we didn't listen to Metallica right, <laughs> you know, right. We didn't listen to any secular music and thank God I'm not like those people you know mm-hmm. and and yet, like on the other side of things, I really felt some of that within the 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 um, social justice circles that it was like, thank you that we only eat organic, you know, and that we <laughs> we don't we aren't defiled by those other, you know, and, right. and so it was. It, it makes us feel good just by making everybody else feel how bad they are, and 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 I I think what I really love about 
much of what's happening in, in the younger generation is, is there's a sense that, man, we all have a lot of contradictions, and, and we don't need to feel like we have it all figured out. Uh, there, there's something just as magnetic as a church that seems to, like, uh, pretend that we've all got it together, which is definitely the church that I grew up in, you mm-hmm. know. That there's something magnetic about a, about a, a group of people that say, hey, we, we don't have it all figured out, and, and we need each other, you know. We're, we're broken people, and, and in the middle of that brokenness, I feel like the Spirit is able to connect. Uh, hmm. And and for me, that was the story of, of, of what happened after September 11th, is is that some people, you know, they, they just rallied around the flag in, in, in the church community, and I went to those congregations and spoke at some of them, you yeah. know, and, 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 and other folks rallied in the streets, and, and yet there were, from many sides, there was a um, such a polarity of um, anger and and uh, um, homogeneity that everyone's just with their own people. Right. And I was really I was really hurt by that because I think we would do well to just um, acknowledge the vulnerability of the moment and and respond uh, well in the midst of that. And I, I think of how the Amish responded to the shooting in their school, you know, yeah. and and how tragic that was, and yet. They, their instinct was to go and, you know, be with the murderer's family and go to the funeral of, of the one that killed some of their kids and mm-hmm. send resources there, you know. Um, and a couple of friends of mine are, are writing a, a book right now, and one of the sections we have is, uh, what if the Amish were Homeland Security? You know, <laughs> thinking about, like, what if that were how we responded to terror and violence and and. Um, and and so I, I am very hopeful, but I, I, I'm also hurt by much of what I see within that that um, uh, kind of pointing the finger at other people. And I felt that so poignantly from both sides that uh, that that you know, thank you that we're not like those other people. Um, and I think it, if we have views like that, we want to end militarism and war. That's a tremendous responsibility for us because it means we got to figure out how our kids are going to go to college and stuff because they're yeah. selectively recruited for, for my yourself now you know? that you have to. You have that's a challenge. Yeah, I mean, for us, the kids in our neighborhood are selectively recruited to the military. They come in, and the the recruiters give out flyers that say, they told you to go to college, they just didn't tell you how. Now you know. And after seeing, you know, kid after kid go into that, it starts. We start to go, boy. If we really are peacemakers, then we've got to figure out how to provide scholarships for kids that want to go to college. And the reason that they're they're joining the army is because they want to go to college, uh, and not just point our finger at, at people that you know how, about how wrong the war is. You you have made other connections between, um, you know, again here I think is your 21st century macro view of the world that you know you you. You saw how difficult it was to uh, to stop kids in the neighborhood from hitting each other, and you you realize that you, you drew a connection between that and and the way we, you know, what we're involved in as a nation. You call, talk about the myth of redemptive violence. Um, what what are you what are you saying there? What do you see there? Yeah, and it's it's funny again because uh, my my theology is very practical theology. It didn't come out of reading books by good Mennonites or something. It yeah. came out of you know trying to teach kids that uh, you you don't you, it's takes more courage uh, to confront someone that's violent with with uh, uh, non aggression than and still and still confront it. You know, and so we we teach kids that where we we do projects like the Alternatives to Violence Project and things like that where we're, we're we're trying to um, 
show kids other ways of, you know, navigating conflicts. And, and uh, so one kid came home, I remember years back and, and a kid was picking on him and he's like, oh, this kid, you know, keeps beating me up. They're calling me names. And we're like, well, you know what, Rolando, that means that you've got to show them what a friend looks like because they may not know what it's like to be a good friend. They may not have had good friends before. So you get to show them. And Rolando goes, oh, man. Love is so hard. <laughs> you know? And I think that's the love that Dostoevsky speaks of when he said, this is not love that's, a, you know, not, not a sentimental love like storybooks, but it's a harsh and dreadful love that, that we were talking about. Uh, and, and it's those kids, too, that in my neighborhood that have, have taught me that, you know. Um, I remember right after September 11th, there's a young man named Stephen, and I asked Stephen, I said, what are we going to do about this this mess, you know? And he was, uh, uh, you know, he thought pensively, and he's like, well, you know, he said, those people did something very, very wrong and evil. And I said, yeah, they did. And he said, but I always say, he's 11, right? But <laughs> I always say two wrongs don't make a right. <laughs> and he said, it doesn't make sense for us to hurt them back. Besides, we're all one big family. And then he looks up at me, and his eyes get real big, and he goes, Shane, that means you and me are brothers, man, mm. uh, which was cool because we got really different colored skin, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, and you're just like, Stephen, go tell the world, you know. And that that's the hope for me is that what made sense is if I'm going to tell Stephen to do that, I've also got to be uh, true to what that means uh, in, in our world. And, and Dr. King said so well, I've taught kids in the, in the ghettos that violence won't solve their problems, but then they ask me, and rightly so, why does our government use massive doses of violence to try to bring about the change that it wants in the world? And I knew that I could no longer speak against the violence of the ghettos but spe- uh, without also speaking against the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, my own government. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's a big responsibility for you to be telling a kid who's, who's facing true, potentially dangerous bullying to go back and love them. I mean, does that ever backfire? Does it ever not work? Because um, evil, evil is real. Um, the darkness of the world is real in a human nature. Well, I, I think that's true, and I think that Jesus, when he's telling us these things, like turn the other cheek, he's he's he, he he's not he's speaking to people who had been slapped. You know, he's speaking mm-hmm. to people who are peasants and revolutionaries and people that were uh, confronted with violence every single day, and uh, and yet it's not a cowardly like just sort of well just get stepped on. But it, it, I think every one of the instances that Jesus is showing us in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you know, if a person uh, slaps you on your cheek, turn your other cheek. And if someone asks you to walk a mile, go two miles. All those things were were very real realities that that confronted evil, but not on its own terms. It, confronted it, it, evil uh, without mirroring con- evil. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's what we're trying to to figure out how to do in our world and in our neighborhood. And I can tell you, I mean, there's real examples of how that's worked over and over in our in our neighborhood. And in, in fact, just. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was walking down the street with uh, Kasim, who's a young man on my block, and uh, a bunch of teenagers jumped us, and they uh, started calling us names and throwing stuff at us, and they were just ready for a fight, you know. They were, mm-hmm. they were just uh, trying to stir it up, and, and uh, we, we keep walking, and then I said, you know, let's not, let's not run from them. Let's go back, and, and we, we introduced ourselves, and Kasim's thinking, like, what in the world? You know, we, we introduced ourselves to them, and I said, my name's Shane, it's Kasim, and um, they, they totally didn't know what to do with that. You know, they're ready to fight, and uh, right. then we keep walking, and then one of them hits 
my my friend Kasim on the on the head with a uh, a oh, club. Gosh. And I mean, my, the, at that moment, my my instinct is like, God, where are you? You know, like, yeah. why did you? We tried not to fight right. these kids, you know. And then I turn around, and I don't know what happened. It, it just sort of snapped for me. And I looked at them, and I said, You guys are created in the image of God, and you're made for something better than this. And, and mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe that's that charismatic fire in me or right. something, you know. But these kids looked at us, and they were total—they had no idea what to do with that. And they just sort of, like, disintegrated into every different direction, you know. And Kasim looks at me, and he goes— what was that? And I'm like, I don't, I don't was he know all right? what it was. You know? Oh, yeah, he was okay. And he came home, and listen to what he said. He said, when we got home, he goes, Shane, you know, we get to go to bed tonight thinking that we acted like Jesus. Mm. And those kids have to go to bed thinking about how they acted. Mm. And this is just a middle school kid, you know. And we sat down, and we prayed for those kids, and we, we thought about it. And I said, Kasim, I don't know what Jesus would have done in our place. You know, I, I know one thing. He would not have run from those kids, and he would not have hit those kids. Maybe he would have done something weird like play in the dirt or, like, pull, you know, bring a pigeon down and pull a coin out of its mouth or something. I don't, I don't know, you know, but he, he, would have, uh, he would have been creative with how he interacted, and I, I'm proud of how you acted, you know. Hmm. And you went to Iraq. Coming yeah. out of out of these <laughs> thoughts, uh-huh. I mean, you didn't. You actually went there out of your yeah, concern for, for, the for me. I was I was deeply, deeply troubled by what I saw happening in in the world, and it wasn't just an original thought. But I saw a number of people that had been over to Iraq, uh, especially folks that had a lot of integrity for me. Groups like the Families for Peaceful Tomorrows that had lost their loved ones in September 11th. From countries they, all over the world. I've interviewed some of them. Yeah. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and so compelling because their campaign, you know, has been, our grief is not a cry for war. And they come back with these beautiful stories of folk, you know, families in Iraq bringing them flowers and gifts for their families. And to me, there there, there was something so uh, redemptive about that. And and uh, it, w- it was both uh, all of this kind of intersecting together, thinking about my neighborhood, thinking about our world, and, and also deeply meditating on the life and story of Jesus, which for me, it's unmistakable in the life of Jesus what love looks like when it stares tremendous evil and violence in the face. And, you know, and, and Jesus loved his enemies so much he died for them and, and stares into the face of those that are nailing him at the cross and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Uh, and, and that story is is a story of my faith, and, and and it teaches me that there's nothing worth killing for, but there is something worth dying for. And for me, that was the integrity of of, of being a person that's a part of a global family and that has an allegiance that runs deeper than nationalism and is a deep spiritual allegiance to Jesus. And and it's that which led me over to Iraq. And I went with a great group of folks, you know, doctors mm-hmm. and nurses and grandmothers and and veterans and and we were there uh in march of 2003 which was a really really scary time it was during the shock and awe campaign and the bombing and uh we we lived in baghdad through through that month you know you wrote um i went to iraq because i believe in a god of scandalous grace what do you mean by that what do those words mean well, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to the wisdom of of that we learn in the world. I think to think, you know, I, that that Jesus loved uh, those people that were were <laughs> inflicting tremendous violence on him, mm-hmm. or the, this um, idea that the scriptures say 
the the wisdom of the cross is, is foolishness to this world. And I think that's good news because in a world of smart bombs, you know, and military intelligence, we can see what those things amount to. And, and to me, the idea that that we can uh, look in the face of evil and say that you are better than the, the worst things that you do, it, it, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And that's what I see in the lives of people like Dr. Martin Luther King is this scandalous love for even the people that are inflicting violence on him. So, mm-hmm. he, you know, Dr. King says, you can threaten our children and we will still love you. You can burn down our houses and we will still love you. You can put us in jail and put your dogs on us and we will still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our love. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and and I love that because it's a story of the martyrs. It's a story of our faith, and uh, mm. and it's also what I learned in Iraq because I saw Christians all over Iraq that were preaching that same gospel of forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Only they were the message sounded a little differently in Baghdad. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. you know, I want to ask you. Um, there's a phenomenon, and I, I'm talking to you. You've been you founded this community what a night ten years ago? Is that right? How old are you now? I'm 31. You're 31. Yeah. You've been following this passion for over a decade, and you still have you have so much passion, so much energy, and you're you've collected other people around you, and you have other other friends and colleagues who have this. You talk a lot about Martin Luther King, and you know one thing that happened. Granted, there was a lot of tragedy also that, that befell the, the civil rights movement. But, you know, one thing I've heard a lot about talking to um, religious people who are involved in the civil rights movement is that they're followed this period of burnout. You know, that's also a, a really common story in, in social justice causes. And um, how do you, you know, how do you think, what are you, you know, do you, do you see that possibility I mean, this is all, mm. seems like this is very exciting. It's thrilling to hear about. Um, can you imagine a time or, or have you, have you gone through periods where you were more dry and how, you know, how do you imagine um, not becoming depleted or not becoming mm. cynical? Because cynicism is often something that follows in the wake of movements like this. Have you, have you thought about this? Yeah. Well, I think that something I've learned in being in social justice circles is is that, uh, and in in conservative or liberal circles for that matter, is is that there's there's often something that that everybody has in common is that we don't have joy, you know, we don't have celebration or laughter. And it's very I, serious I have, stuff. We yeah. have so yeah, we have so much fun. Like I live with people who we laugh hard together and we we cry hard together too. Uh, but I, I love the saying of Emma Goldman, which where she said. It, if I can't dance, then it's not my revolution. Hmm. And so I think a part of what we do is we, we get out and we, we uh, do things with our hands. We get our hands dirty, you know, in the garden today. We, we do things that, that capture pieces of, of what it means to build another world, you know, but, but, but we don't just get sucked in, in in the, you know, the arena of lobbying and we don't just respond to needs, you know, uh, at our door every moment, you know, but we're, we're kind of have this holistic sense of, um, of, of of all the ingredients that it takes to brew that up, and I, I think what what community is is surrounding yourself with people who are like the person you want to become, you know. And mm-hmm. so we 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 push each other a little further uh, in what it means to love, and and in in uh, how we can have. You um, say that you're extremists in love. You've said that that you're yeah. lovers. That that is your your definition of your identity. 
Yeah, and so and so I'm just surrounded with with folks that are are so encouraging, uh, and 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 for me, I, I also keep a really good rhythm of life. Like I have a very disciplined life of you know of getting up in the morning for prayer, and and we have a Sabbath day where we just rest together, you know, mm-hmm. and we don't answer the door or the phone, and and so all of those things are sort of a part of our integrated faith and who we are, and and things that we share together, and we have meals together as a community, and we we uh, we we function a lot like a family, so that. that that keeps us, uh, I think, very energized for the long haul. But I mean, families have hard times, and families have struggles and irritations. I mean, living in proximity. I've heard this also from monastics, you know, traditional monastics, that they have all the kind of irritations and need to for mm. necessity of forgiveness that any family has. I mean, have you had um, have you had periods of of despair, of discouragement? Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't know if we have enough time for all that, but <laughs> we, we uh, for sure we, you, you know, and I, I think that, uh, like for for instance, drug addiction is huge. You know, we we are a block from one of the uh, most notorious heroin corners in in Philadelphia, and that's something that. I, I think drove us to the very brink of uh, collapse because we had folks living with us, and we, we we're trying to hold this vision of we'll just live with the doors unlocked. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we had mm-hmm. people that came and stole our car and stole our uh, refrigerator and our crock pot. That was sort of the end of the line to the crock pot. You know, I mean, these are right. things that we're we're trying to use to take care of folks. And then we we but then we look at ourselves and we go, well, why why do we stink so bad at at you know dealing with addiction? And we're like. Well, none of us have used heroin. How about that for starters? You know, and, and so then we began really having this deliberate relationship with with New Jerusalem, the recovery community, and we we have this sense that we're a part of a body, and I think that that's really refreshing. Not to feel like every one of us has got to do everything, but we're mm-hmm. a part of a of a large movement and a community of communities and a, and, and a body that that. Um, Together, as the scriptures say, in community, love is made complete. And, and that's refreshing to know that we don't have to be the full picture of, of everything that's got to happen in our neighborhood or in our world, but we work out what we do best and try to harmonize with other you know, communities and voices as, as best we can. And do you think of yourself as being part of a revolution, a kind of revolution? I I it's <laughs> you a can word hear my used. hesitation. Yes. I'm I'm it's careful because because I I don't ever want to fall in love with a movement mm-hmm. or a revolution. You know, I the way that I look at Jesus is he uh the the temptation was just to overthrow Rome, you know, and knock Herod out of power and all these things that turn stones into bread, fling himself from the temple and all those things, but like Jesus hangs out with people and I think that Jesus's life shows me that revolution is not a big thing, but it's a very small thing. You know, that we we've gotta live it out in in in, in, in small ways out of little communities. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer who has been a good teacher for us on mm-hmm. community. He yeah. says the person German who's, theologian and the, who died in a Nazi prison. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and one of the things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says is the person who's in love with their vision of community will destroy community, but the person who loves the people around them will create community everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's something that's held us together is not just to fall in love with a movement or a revolution, but to try to um, 
live in, in, in radical ways and in simple ways that what we know is, is coming. Because I, I think that the, the world right now is, is undergoing a beautiful transition of thought and, and, and in young people within the church, there's so much that's hopeful that it's it's very tempting just to kind of become very narcissistic and fall in love with our own revolution or movements right. or whatever. And uh, so I, I guess I'm careful not to do that. <laughs> we're, we're, tell me about when, when Shane Claiborne looks at it, what's happening in the world, what's happening in America. I mean, talk to me about some of the people in the communities who, for you, are defining the present or, you know, participating in this new imagination that you describe. Mm. Boy, there there's so many different communities that give me a lot of hope. And some of them are folks just like uh, I, I met a suburban family that said, we're trying to figure out what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. And for us, it means that for every biological child that we send to college, we're creating a scholarship fund and uh, making sure that an at-risk youth can go to college and we get to know their family and mm. and. Um, and, you know, interact with them and help make that happen. And uh, and then I met a bunch of uh, kids that said, you know, we're we're trying to figure out how to uh, find the Calcutta around us. As Mother mm-hmm. Teresa said, Calcuttas are everywhere. Right. If find your own Calcutta. To see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they said, so we started looking around and we found this old folks home. And we went in, and these are actually, I should say, they're they're kind of preppy teenage girls, you know, like cheerleaders and All stuff. Right. And Where I, are so they? So we found that in, this was out uh, out in western Pennsylvania, okay. and they they said we, we're so we're, we're trying to find this little um, the the retirement home. We went in, and we we asked for all of the women who don't have any uh, visitors or family. And so we go and we visit them and we paint their fingernails and toenails and we just listen to their story. Mm. And uh, I, I love it because it's it's unique, you know, and it's mm-hmm. it's beautiful. And, and then some of those some of these things they they they're pretty big. Like I, I I love how people are rethinking their vocations, and especially young people about how do I use the gifts that that, that I've been given to transform the world. And one of those is a guy on my block who's a scientist who now is studying the world water crisis and he's trying to figure out some of the best technology for providing clean water to people and um and and he's doing all that from our block in North Philly, you right. know. And uh and this is funny too, actually we met some other folks that they had heard about some of the stuff we're doing around water and they started a little business because they, they thought it's so scandalous that we buy bottled water, you know, and, and when we have treated water all around us, they started this company where they basically bottle tap water, they take it to uh, festivals and conferences and concerts, and they sell sell this water, and then they give all the money uh, towards <laughs> world water relief. You know, <laughs> so just there's so much imagination uh, that's out there, and, and, there and also, there's communities. Yeah, that's that, what I was that, to say. I there are other communities that are maybe different from yours, but kindred. <laughs> yeah, and, and we're really careful not to just try to spread one particular model of mm-hmm. community. You know, folks call us all the time, and they're like, "Can we start a simple way community?" And we're like, "Well." do community you know we don't we don't have a brand or a franchise going on you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and and one of the things that we're doing that's really exciting is we're having what we're calling schools for conversion uh, every month this year hosted by a different community around the country that's trying to figure out how to live a little differently from the patterns of the world you know and uh, so those are going on uh, all over the country and they're four-day 
immersions in a community to try oh. to study the marks of our life. And it's very much within this idea of a new monasticism to, to, tr- to try to give exposure to communities that are working that out well. Uh, and, and there's so there, there's, there's communities of people that have been living together for 50 years and do alternatives to uh, yes. to insurance and things like that. One of the things that uh, I've now I'm now a part of is a group of us that share our medical bills. And there's now 20,000 of us that meet each other's medical bills. And it's beautiful because when you get sick, you have people. What does that mean? There's a pool? There's a pool of money? That yeah, I'm yeah. So the way that it started was like 500 people that said uh, they wanted Somebody had gotten sick, and so they uh, paid the medical bill for this person. And they said, well, that's great. If we can do that for them, we can do it for each other. And now, 20 years later, that that group has grown to about 20,000 of us, and we've paid over $400 million in medical bills. And again, this is Christians. This is a group called Christian Healthcare Ministry. But how does that work? How much, money you, how much money does everybody contribute? We give, it's a, a contribution we give each month, which mm-hmm. is a, sort of a sliding scale. I give about $100 a month, and I know that over 90% of that is going directly to okay. uh, my sister's and brother's medical bill, and one, one month's contribution is for administration. But it also like kind of gets at what, what's at my heart, which is I'm, I'm not ready just to say, uh, to the government, you've got to be what the church is meant to become, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I love the work that we're all doing for universal health care, you know, and all those things. But I also want to see a church that embodies the good news, you know, that embodies things that give hope to those who have really uh, been left outside of, of a lot of those structures. Mm-hmm. Um, and having said that, too, I think that the communities that are out there, there's all kinds of expressions of people um, in suburban life and rural life all over the place that are beginning to experience life just outside of the detached nuclear family, you know, okay. and are seeing that bring themselves to life. And one of the great examples of that was, was a married couple that I stayed with. And they said, you know, we, we were unable to have children uh, as a married couple. And they were about 50 years old. And they said, but then we were walking through our neighborhood. And we met this woman who had found herself homeless, and she was six months pregnant. And so we said, my gosh, you know, you got you can't be on the street. So they brought her back to their house. They said, you know, we'll figure this out as we go. And they really hit it off together, and they said, if you want to have your child while you're living here with us, we would love to be a part of that process because we've always wanted to have a kid, you know. And uh, so she did. She had her kid there living in their home, and it, it, it was so amazing that they continued to live together and raise the child. And then they said to this mother, they said, well, what what are your dreams? You know, we're getting to live out one of ours. And she said, I've always wanted to go to nursing school. So they said, well, we, we will take care of your kid and, and help you financially if you want to go to nursing school. And so she did. She went and became a nurse. And I just went back to visit them. And they've lived together for over 10 years. <laughs> and they, they are the the woman who's formerly homeless is a nurse. That little girl that she had is hmm. uh, almost a teenager now. And the, the amazing thing is that the woman of that married couple now has multiple sclerosis and she's dying. But she's got a nurse living in her home with her, taking mm. care of her, mm. and she dies. Mm. So I think those expressions are they're all over the place, and okay. that, that that's what's so beautiful. Mm. Well, there's we could keep talking forever. I um, let me just let me ask you this. Um, you know, you're <laughs> you call yourself a radical, and you and you and you draw on the the root of that word, which is um, which dry, is driving to the core. Um, 
and yet you know you're having you're having a quite a bit of of success. You have a book that sold a lot of copies that people are reading. You're speaking all over the country. It was hard for us to pin down a time to have you on the show. Hmm. I mean, do you worry about um, what our culture does to success, even if it comes from the best of intentions? Do you worry about what our culture does to to saints? Because I think that some people probably are setting you up as a a very cool, but uh, <laughs> saintly, <laughs> saintly figure. <laughs> Well, it, well, I think one thing that community does is it keeps you very grounded. You know, okay. <laughs> we make sure that because you see each other at your best and your worst. And mm-hmm. I am, um, uh, it, to me, it's such a gift to have a group of people that I live with and that I'm accountable to, uh, and that don't take me too seriously. And okay. I, I love when Dorothy Day said, "Don't call us saints because we don't want to be dismissed that easily." <laughs> you know, it, it's it, it's too easy. And and also, I know myself well. You know, and I think part of why people can identify with my story is for the very reason that I'm not a saint. Like, I, I've had this journey of unfolding, and, uh, you know, I, I'm very honest, I think, about my contradictions and, and struggles. And um, so so I don't think too highly of myself, and I, I think very highly of God, and, and God God's good. And uh, when, when uh, my friend Rich Mullins, he was a singer and songwriter, and he said, you know, God uses all kinds of stuff in the scriptures. There's one story where God speaks to a guy named Balaam through his ass, and God's been speaking through asses ever since. So <laughs> if God should use us, don't think too highly of ourselves, you know? <laughs> how, how would you respond to someone who said, well, you know, these stories you tell about good things happening are beautiful in these communities, but it's anecdotal, and it's just one person here, one person there, one small group of people here, one small group of people there, you know, why... You're not going to really change the world. You know how how would you how do you respond to that? Mm. Well, I, I'd say if we look a little closer at history, we we see that that's the only way it's ever been done. You know, and that these groups of people begin to come together and and ripple. Um, new imagination and an ideas that that are very contagious uh, and uh, I, I especially look at the story of my faith you know and <laughs> Jesus chooses this little group of people where uh, what a what a bunch of you know goofballs I mean one of them denies him another betrays him and uh, in, in, another doubts him and, and yet it's that little group of people that uh, even in the midst of that brokenness I think is a testimony of of, of God's goodness and that the the movement builds and the the Christian mystics know that so well because they say that God's spirit comes through the cracks and 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 mm. not through the togetherness and and so I, I hope that we are people that uh, you know are are able to allow God's love to come through us even in in, in the brokenness of our lives and a friend a friend of mine Don Miller wrote a book called. Um, blue like jazz and he talks about a place where they set up these confession booths on their campus and they just it wasn't for people to come confess their sins but it was rather so that people could confess the sins that they had done in the name of God you know the ways that we've embarrassed God and the sins of the church throughout history and I, I, he just talks about how magnetic that was on their campus. And was that a Christian I, I think, campus then? No, not at all. Uh-huh. And so that that's part of what was so neat about right. it was that uh, a church that, that's able to get on its knees and confess the, the uh, 
uh, horrible and, and embarrassing things that we've done in the name of God, I think, is very magnetic to folks in, in this world. You know, that, that, that line about, what was it, God coming through the cracks? God comes to us through the cracks? Yeah, St. John well, like, of the Cross. That was St. John of the Cross, wasn't it? You, you quote that in your book, and you, you say, goth kids love St. John of the Cross. Is that true? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating if it is. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you'd want to say or tell me um, you know imagine you're kind of talking about a whole world that is going to be very new to people people don't even know somebody like you and all the other people around you exist I mean, is there anything else you'd want to shine a light on point to hmm. well I, I would say that, that one thing that's been so encouraging after writing the book is just seeing having letters come in you know and I mm-hmm. try to write folks back and especially people that have said I knew that there was more to Christianity than just, you know, patriotic pastors and cover-up bishops and all these horrible, you know, things that we've seen. And and, and uh, over and over, folks that are, you know, sexual minorities and people that have really felt themselves completely outside the church. And I am so encouraged by that. And I, I even had a, um, uh, some folks in a mosque that told me that they were reading my book together in a study group. Really? <laughs> just like, oh my gosh, that's exactly huh. uh, some of the, you know, the most encouraging things that I would see. I had a guy on, on death row that uh, wrote me a letter and he said, when you talk about the myth of redemptive violence, he said, I am a witness that uh, of another possibility. And he said, because the family of the victim of my crime argued that I not be killed for what I did, that I was not beyond redemption. And he said that gave me a lot of time to think while I was in prison. And he said he became a Christian and now he's a voice, you know, speaking out. And he said in the abandoned places of the empire, you know, which for Mm -hmm. him means behind bars, Mm -hmm. but uh, uh, of that hope and that that, uh, restorative justice. And so I, I think that I'm I'm so encouraged by all of the signs of hope and one of the things that I'm trying to do is is not just be a soloist but to try to harmonize you know with mm-hmm. other voices and not just homogenize not all like end up the same but to to figure out how we can uh give visibility to to um a Christianity that that uh I think reflects who Jesus is and it's crazy that we've we've come so far from that I think in a lot of ways but I'm 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 so encouraged by the voices that are out there and the expressions that are out there um of, of our faith and um uh so I I guess the only other thing I would add is is um that what became clear to me in Iraq is that What's at stake is not just the reputation of America, but the identity of what it means to be Christian. Hmm. And I heard, you know, Iraqis, even Iraqi Christians that called leaders in the United States Christian extremists. Uh, And I I think what's so tragic is people have seen the visibility of Christianity in some of the most uh, um, horrible ways, you know, um, from folks that'll blow up an abortion clinic and dance on the doctor's grave, you know, and hold Hmm. signs that say, God hates fags. And and this is sick Christianity. And I'm encouraged by so many people that are standing up and refusing to allow that Christianity to reflect who we are and are saying, we're going to give visibility to something a little bit different in this world. Hmm. 
And in the South, where I'm from, you know, we have an Im- a saying that you're the spitting image of somebody. You know, I get told I'm the spitting image of my grandfather all the time. And uh, it's shorthand for the spirit and image, you know, and, and it doesn't just mean you look like them, oh, but you're the character of them. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So somebody told me that, and I'm like, that makes so much sense. And, yes. and so in a lot of ways, I, I guess what I, I hope that we are seeing is Christians who are beginning to be, again, the spitting image of Christ, you know, mm-hmm. that are starting to look like and do the things that Jesus did mm-hmm. and, and, and not be. Uh, totally distracted by those which have proclaimed the name of Christ and done so many other things. Hmm. This is my last question. I, you know, yeah. you're 31 now, so you're you're really getting old. But I think I'm just kidding. Right? You're you're closer to. I think you are um, a role model for a lot of even even younger people coming up. You know, and there's a lot of speculation about this Gen Y, and you know, I've heard the we not me generation and then I've heard other studies that say they're more selfish and self-obsessed than any previous generation and you know I, mm. I don't hold very much I don't I don't uh, trust those kinds of analyses of entire swaths of people but what do you see in the people around you your age and younger um, mm. what, are you, what do you see as qualities of this generation and your experience well, I, I can definitely say that they're, they're, <laughs> we are totally overwhelmed by the amount of people who are responding to uh, the message and the witness of the communities that we're a part of. We get like 20 calls and letters a day of folks that have uh, – um, that are like, oh, we're so ready for something new. Mm-hmm. You know, and are they young? Are they, are oh, my they gosh. Yeah. 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 They're yeah. So, yeah, they're so young. They'll hitchhike across the country and end up at our door, you uh-huh. know, and we're like, well, we're not taking <laughs> visitors right now, except we did have a visitor that showed up the other day that had hitchhiked up from Liberty University, uh, which is where Jerry Falwell, right. you know, that's his school. And we're like, well, we'll make an exception. Come on in, you know. <laughs> but but we, we, it, it's so encouraging that there are, are people uh, that are out there asking uh, th- I think the world's a little smaller, and, and folks are, they want to know where their clothes are made. They want to know, mm-hmm. you know, where their food comes from. And, and, and I, I feel like that's, uh, th- th- that's, that's a really beautiful thing. And there are people that uh, over and over where I, I go places that, that folks have uh, seen the emptiness of the dream that their parents have settled for, where th- we've been sold this this idea of the American dream that they've seen just can end up being loneliness, you know, mm-hmm. and can rob us of community and 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 joy in life, and and so they're looking for something more. They they want to volunteer, they want to do something bigger than that, and I think that's why you have like folks joining the, the Peace Corps and AmeriCorps mm-hmm. and all these programs, you know, but you also have folks that I think are asking great questions about um, who, not just what they're going to do when they grow up, but who they are becoming. And mm-hmm. I think that's a much more important question. It's not whether or not we're going to be a lawyer or a doctor, <laughs> but what kind of lawyer or doctor we're going to be. Hmm. Okay, that's great. This has been, oh, sorry, we've got a couple, hang, I just got a question from behind the glass. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, we get to layer our hour of radio to, I think, evoke the layers of religious life, which includes music, and um, mm-hmm. and we would we might want to um, y- use some of the music that's in your DVDs. So we may just come back at you with some questions by email about making sure we've got rights to to play clips from that or something. Okay. Okay. Surely. Is, yeah. And we we've got like. Uh, sounds that we brought back from Iraq yeah. and all that I, that I recorded on a handheld radio. Oh, you really? can obviously have all those. And we also yeah, have a ton have of, that. 
we have a ton of um, artists here that are a part of our communities that give us, you know, creative commons rights to their stuff. Okay, that's very cool, and we have a fabulous website. If you've if you've looked at it, you know that. I did look and, at it. Um, yeah. So, um, we who should we? We've been communicating. I don't know. With Jocelyn, is she? Will she be a good person to send those questions to, or is there somebody else we should write uh, to? As far as just the the music and rights, and yeah, stuff. and and maybe getting other, you know, figuring out what other resources we can pull in for the radio and the web. Yeah, no, she she probably wouldn't be the best for that. Okay. I, I'll tell you what, if you just if you, I'll give you my email. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, that's great. It's okay. Oh, I didn't even ask Gmail. you about circus. Okay. At gmail.com. Yeah, that's great. And what I'll do is I'll put you in touch. Good. With uh, my buddy Jamie, who does all that. Okay, wonderful. Thank you this so much. This is great. Yeah, yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, well, this I'm excited about the show we're going to yeah. Okay, blessings well, okay. on you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.